I'm excited to get back to our series, Liar, Liar, Pants on Fire. I think this is the fourth message. I'm getting a four sign back there, fourth message. Someone's keeping track at home. Um, in the series where we look at lies that we hear in the world, lies generated by Satan and sometimes even lies that we tell ourselves. And the thing I want to talk to you about today, very relevant, um, perhaps you heard in the week, the, this last week, um, there was at the Oscars, um, Will Smith was offended and slapped the host. So we're going to be looking at that today, a time to slap. <laughs> Is it? No, we're not going to talk about that at all, actually. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard way too much about it, as I have. Unbelievable um, how that has captured the country's attention this last week. So we're not going to talk about that at all today. Um, we're going to talk about something totally different, a different lie that we hear in the world. But first, before we do that, before we start examining a certain lie, I'd like us to look at a passage that again warns us about the lies in the world and this morning, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 10, 3 to 5. Just consider what this passage uh, reminds us about how we respond to the lies that we hear in the world around us. So let's uh, look at this passage together. For though we walk in the flesh, and I do encourage you to turn there in your Bibles too, so you can see the context. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Now, we find this passage in the letter to the Corinthian church, the second letter that we have in Scripture, although there were other letters, at least uh, another letter in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians called the severe letter, but this is the second one we have in Scripture. And in this letter that Paul sends, he is having to defend his ministry. There have been a lot of accusations against Paul, a lot of detractors who were criticizing Paul for a number of things, saying he was unimpressive in speech, saying that, well, you are you know, bold on one hand, and then, and then you are, uh, in your letter, just very soft. And so he is saying, look, I, I am an apostle of Christ, and he's defending his ministry to them. And with that, um, in this passage, in verses 1 and 2, he starts defending his ministry, and then he wants to explain in verses 3 to 5 a bit more about the ministry that he has. And he starts it off here by using a play on the word flesh. You'll see this in verse 3 here. He says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. Same word in the Greek as well, this word for flesh, saying, though we walk in the flesh. And what is he saying by that? Is he saying, I walk sinfully? No. He's saying, yes, we have physical bodies. We walk in the flesh. We're in the flesh, we walk with bodies like everyone else. But then he says, we do not war according to the flesh. So you might think that he would have said, we, we walk in the flesh, but do we, we do not walk according to the flesh. And there, that would be a distinction in itself. To say, I'm in the flesh, but not according to the flesh. Because walking according to the flesh would mean I'm, 
I'm living in a way that's sinful and ungodly and just according to my own desires instead of what God has commanded. And that's partly what he's communicating. Not, he is in the flesh, but not according to the flesh. But he chooses not to say walk in that second part, part of the verse here. As we walk in the flesh, but we do not war according to the flesh. So he kicks it up a notch here. And he starts using military language throughout these verses and talking about his ministry. And this is not new to Paul. It's not new to the New Testament, is it? We see a lot of language about war. <clears throat> In this passage alone, we see war according to the flesh. It talks about weapons, the destruction of fortresses, destroying speculations and taking things captive. There's a lot of warfare going on in this passage. Then again, that's not uncommon. We see that in Ephesians 6 about the armor of God. Uh, I hope you were listening as we were singing this morning. The choir did a number about the armor of God, and then we all stood up and said, soldiers of Christ arise. Um, and that's taken right from Scripture. These passages about 6 compares us to soldiers uh, in 2 Timothy 2, 3, and 4. Uh, Paul would say he fight, fought the good fight. Uh, we see in Scripture the war between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, so that's not uncommon for us. And so as we look at this verse, and he says we war according to the flesh, we need to recognize that we are in a battle. As Christians, we are in a battle. So we need to first see that, and then we got to understand, well, what is this battle that we're in? What is this warfare all about? Now, in some cases, we're thankful it's not a physical warfare, as, uh, as what's happening in Ukraine right now, but it is nonetheless a battle, and he's going to explain that. He says it's not according to flesh, it's not a physical battle, and then he goes on to explain that the weapon, weapons aren't physical weapons that we fight with. <clears throat> now, he doesn't immediately say what these weapons are, and we think, well, what are these weapons you're talking about, Paul, that, that we use to fight? He doesn't immediately say, but he does describe them. He says they're divinely powerful for the destruction of forces. These are powerful weapons that we have. And they're not physical, but they are certainly powerful ones that can destroy fortresses. Well, the key then to figuring out what are these weapons is figuring out, okay, what are these fortresses that are being destroyed? How are fortresses coming down? What is taking these fortresses down? Well, he explains it in verse 5. We are destroying, using the same word here of destruction in verse 4. Verse 5, we are raised up against the knowledge of God. So what these weapons, powerful weapons are doing is they're destroying speculations and lofty things. The weapons that we have are destroying the wrong thinking, the wrong ideologies, the wrong philosophy, the wrong worldview around us. And so that is, that is the battle we're fighting. And so as we have this series of the lies that we face, we've got to realize we're in a war. We have to fight these lies. We have to fight this wrong thinking, this wrong philosophy around us. We need to destroy it. We need to pull down, tear down this wrong thinking. Well, how do we do that? What are these weapons again 
that does that? Well, what did Paul rely on to do that? If Paul's saying this is what we do, well, let's see, what did Paul do? And look back at 1 Corinthians 2, and Paul tells us exactly the secret to what the weapons are and how these wrong, this wrong thinking is torn down. He says in 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5, When I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So when Paul came to them, and he came wanting to tear down the wrong thinking, he came preaching Christ. He didn't get with persuasive words of wisdom, with superiority of speech. It wasn't clever arguments that were going to win the day. Those aren't the weapons that were going to tear down the fortresses that he talks about later in the second letter. It's teaching the gospel, teaching biblical truth, teaching the, uh, the message of the apostles and what's now recorded for us in Scripture. This is what tears down, is biblical truth tears down the wrong thinking in the fortresses around us. So when we hear the lies, when we hear these things, we, we can't come up with clever arguments. We can't search for ways, how do we trick them out of this? We need to say, okay, how does biblical truth apply to this? How do we take what is being said and then compare it with Scripture and show how the truth from God's Word defeats that wrong thinking? So that is what Paul these weapons. And then he finishes this section that we're in here in 2 Corinthians 10, or that we're going to look at at least. He says, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. In addition to destroying the wrong ideas, we need to align all of our thinking, align all of our reasoning under the authority of God's word. Now that is true whether we're speaking with unbelievers or with believers. When you're speaking with an unbeliever and, and they're speaking about a worldly philosophy, a mindset that is opposite of God's word, you need to point them, no, this doesn't align, and show how that thought is incompatible with what God has said. In our daily thinking, we need to do this as well for ourselves and be checking our thinking. Is it held captive to God's word? Is it in line? Because the of the world, look again up in, uh, in the beginning of verse 5 there, these speculations and every lofty thing, it's not just any idea, but it's those that are raised up against the knowledge of God. And so we want to take God's truth and say, look, here's the lie. This is what God's truth is, and tear down that wrong thinking. And so that is what the whole goal is of this series, is taking a look at the lies and saying, how does God's truth compare to this and really nullify that wrong thinking that's in the world? So we've looked at a few things already, the concept of truth. We looked at the idea of you are a victim. We looked at the idea of follow your heart. Well, the lie that we're going to look at today is the lie of autonomy. Autonomy. And that 
made for you or perhaps not. Autonomy comes from the Greek, and it comes from the words auto and namas. Auto means self, and namas means law. So it literally means a law to yourself, or living under your own law is the idea. And it's the idea that you make all your own moral judgments, and you determine yourself what is right to do or good to do. And so while the last time we looked at we don't want to be controlled by our emotions, follow your heart is a worldly idea that we shouldn't follow, this is the idea of follow your mind, follow your own thinking, follow your own reasoning, and you are controlled by your own will and your own judgments. Now, I'm sure few of us have heard someone come up to you and say, hey, you're autonomous, you know, um, you have autonomy and you are a law to yourself. And then you go, oh, you know what? Maybe I am. That's not the kind of words uh, that are used today, not the phrases that are used in our culture. We hear something a bit more like, you do you. That's a common phrase now, you do you. And of course, someone may say that in a very lighthearted way, not meaning anything. But if we peel it back, a lot of times what that is saying is, you do whatever you think is best. You do whatever you decide is best for you, whatever you think is morally right, you do what you want. Or you may have heard it, be who you are. Just be who you are. Or as Frank Sinatra would say, I did it my way, <laughs> um, is, is the same idea. Or I, there's a quote <clears throat> that is somewhat popular saying, be who you are and say what you feel because in the end, those who matter don't mind, and those who mind don't matter. Wow! <laughs> is that ever deep? Um, what it's basically saying is, do whatever you want, and if anyone cares, then they don't matter. You choose your own path. You do whatever you want. And this is the thinking that lies behind a lot of different statements today even though maybe it not, may not be as clearly or as forthrightly said, but we see the outworking of this in a lot of different ways. We see the outworking of this concept of autonomy in abortion. People will say, my body, my choice. Well, what's the problem with that statement? Well, the problem gets back to this idea of autonomy that it's your body, your choice. Now, there's other problems because, wait a minute, we're not talking about, your, about the body of this baby. But even so, even saying it's your body is not true. We are not autonomous. We don't get the final say in what we do. Or we see it in gender, autonomy over gender. I decide what gender that I am. That who's to say what anyone else does? I have autonomy. I'm a law to myself. Or it plays out in the idea of sexual relations. As long as there's consent, there's nothing wrong with it. It's kind of uh, group autonomy. If this person and this person agree that it's not a problem, then who else is to say? And we see it also played out even over life and death. The statement, no one can tell me what to do with my life, therefore physician-assisted suicide is perfectly acceptable. In all these different areas, they would question, hopefully, we got to see that behind this lies the idea of personal autonomy, 
that we get to choose whatever we want. And so it has far-reaching consequences. To believe this lie will affect your thinking and your actions in a number of different areas. And so that's why I thought it was important that we look at together. Now, I want to clarify before we move on, there is a limited autonomy that we all have. We do all have meaningful human choice. It's not as if we believe in fatalism or determinism that, hey, you don't have a choice of what you do each day. You're some kind of uh, mechanical being, some robot that happens. We, we don't hold that to be true. We do believe people have the ability to make decisions without being coerced or forced by someone else. So is there limited autonomy? Yes, there is. And that's not what we're focusing on today. Um, we do not hold to that type of determinism or fatalism where we make no decisions. And I think we all know, um, just by experience, you have some level of ability, some limited autonomy right now. You're choosing to sit there right now. You're choosing not to throw things at me right now. I'm thankful for that. <laughs> um, but yes, you could um, choose one flavor of ice cream versus choosing another flavor of ice cream. Usually choosing chocolate, something with chocolate chips or brownies is the better choice in that case. But it is a choice. <laughs> you agree? Chocolate? Yeah. So, so I'm not speaking of a limited autonomy. I'm not saying that everything is predetermined and we have no option uh, each day. That is true. I'm talking about this own moral choices in this world, and no one could tell me otherwise. Now, we've seen this lie of autonomy played out, and I mentioned a number of different ways, different phrases, but it reaches all the way to the highest levels of our country. Even in our Supreme Court, there are statements that are being made that insert this idea of autonomy in it. An important case in 1992, it was at the U.S. Supreme Court, Planned Parenthood versus, Planned Parenthood versus Casey in 92, where restrictions were wanting to be put on abortion, and Planned Parenthood uh, fought that all the way to the highest courts. And the decision went toward Planned Parenthood that, that it, some restrictions were not allowed. But the opinion that was written by Justice Anthony Kennedy in this day, he wrote in the majority opinion, these matters involving the most intimate and personal choices a person may make in a lifetime, choices central to personal dignity and autonomy, are central to the liberty protected by the 14th Amendment. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood where they formed under compulsion of the state. And the part that I want you to notice in that statement there is saying everyone has the right to define your concept of existence, meaning, the universe, and the mystery of human life. Everyone, this opinion writes, can decide that for themselves. It's up to you to decide. What does the universe mean that each person gets to decide? Now, while we would hold to a, a form of religious liberty where we're not coercing people, if we look big picture and say, is everyone 
free to decide whatever they want about the meaning of life and about existence, and all those opinions are equally valid? Well, certainly not. Certainly not. God has something to say about that. God has something to say about the existence of life and of personhood and what is right and wrong. This is beyond the limited autonomy that we would necessarily agree with of choosing one thing or the next by preference. This is saying you, ha- you can decide your own will on pretty much everything, the most important things in life. So this is the concept of autonomy that I want to speak to today. And look at Ruth comes against this idea of autonomy, of being able to decide for yourself what is right and wrong by your own moral judgments. Now, you may think, wait a minute, as Christians, I'm not going to fall into that. I know that I can't decide what's right and wrong on my own, that I need to listen to what God has said and listen to God's word. And I'm thankful for that, absolutely. But I do think sometimes... We can hear so much talk about freedom, about go do it yourself, be your own man, be who you are, that we can start living that way. And in fact, we can start living sometimes as believers, not relying and looking to God on a regular basis, a daily basis, as we should. A term that sometimes uses practical atheism. And practical atheism is the idea that although you would assent mentally, yes, I believe there's a God, the way you live, your practical life, your day-to-day life, doesn't look much different than someone who denies that there's a God. So it is living as there's no God, or making decisions, or facing difficulties. And instead of going to God's word and seeking answers, or seeking the Lord in prayer, It is going on and making those decisions as if you had the wisdom on your own and you could make the decisions without looking to God at all. It is a practical atheism, living as if you didn't believe in God. And that's what we need to avoid as Christians, is recognizing that although we may disagree with autonomy in the big sense, do we live like we believe? with that, I want to look at what is the truth that speaks against autonomy. Why, can, why is it wrong to say, I don't get to decide what's right and wrong, that I am not in ultimate control of my life? Well, point A here under the truth is reality speaks against your autonomy. Reality alone speaks against your autonomy. And what do I mean by that? Well, if you think you can do everything yourself, and you're self-sufficient, able to accomplish it, did you determine the timing of your birth? The place of your birth? The parents that you were born into? Certainly not. You had no control over that. You're not in control of the sun coming up each day. You're not in control of the air that you breathe. Your heart beating right now. You're alive because your heart is beating. Your other internal organs are working. Are you controlling No, we can't control that. We're not consciously thinking, okay, beep, 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 you know, or or anything else that's going on inside of us. We got to recognize those are outside of our control. And reality is, as much as we may think we're self-sufficient, independent, we need to drink water regularly or we're going to die. 
and put calories in our body. And if you don't sleep on a regular basis, you're not going to function well. We are not so in control and so independent as we might think we are. We need to have these things. And, you know, I, you know, know from taking some long flights, sleep is a very sweet thing when you're tired. And I know my good friend Manny over there, he does some late night shifts, security, and it's hard to function when you don't have sleep. We may think we're pretty strong, but if we don't get sleep, we're a wreck. We are not as in control as we think we are. And Scripture speaks to this. James 4.14 compares us with a vapor. It says, yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. If we think we're so high and mighty that Scripture points us otherwise, we are very brief on this earth. Like the, a cold morning when uh, your hot air comes out of your mouth and then it's gone. That's how permanent we are in comparison to the Lord. And Isaiah 40 compares us with grass. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows upon it, surely the people are grass. We are not so mighty. God is in control, and we cannot stay his hand. Our humanity and frailty should produce some humility. Our weakness, the reality that our lives could end any moment, should produce some humility and not think that, hey, I'm in control. I get to decide all these things. We can't control simple things like the beating of our own hearts, and yet we're going to say, I get to determine the meaning of the universe. I get to determine what is right and what is wrong. That's a lot of pride in there, isn't it? God put Job in his place when he began to question, why did you allow all these things? And God explained, wait a minute, Job, look at, look at my creation. Look at what I have done. And then you come talk to me when you think you know what's better than what I do. So at the end of Job, he responds, I have to which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. And then he says, therefore I retract and repent in dust and ashes. When we think, when we become prideful and think we are a law to ourselves, we need to respond as Job finally does and say, look, um, I'm declaring things I don't understand. I need to look elsewhere outside myself for the answers. So reality speaks against your autonomy. Secondly, God's existence speaks against your autonomy. Now, thankfully, as we say, who are we to say that decide right and wrong? What is morally good? Well, thankfully, we, God has shown us what is good, and God has revealed that to us in his word. God is the answer to our weakness and our inability. An important fact we need to remember that is God, and you're not him. You don't get to decide. God does. We can't do whatever we please. And there's particular roles or actions that God does that point out that he is in control and we are not. And the first is this, God is creator. Let's remember that God has made all things. We see that in the very first verse of the Bible, don't we? God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Also in Colossians 1, 
I think, is a key passage here. Speaking of Christ, it says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. And you can see all things there mentioned. By, for by him all things were created. And again at the end, all things have been created through him. Saying occasional things, all things have been created by God. And not only created through him, but they were created for him. And we see this again in Revelation 4, verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. The truth that God has created all things means that he is worthy of all glory and honor and power. He is worthy of obedience. He is worthy to be the one who gets to call the shots because he has created all things. And so, since God is creator, we're not a law to ourselves. We need to submit to the lordship of Christ. But not only is God creator, God is sustainer. The passage we looked at just now, Colossians 1.16, is followed by verse 17. You can write that down. 17 follows 16. But what does 17 tell us? 17 says, after saying all things have been created through him and for him, it says he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God sustains all life on this earth. God keeps things going in this earth. <clears throat> We're reminded in Hebrews 1.3 that he upholds all things by the word of his power. In Matthew 7, uh, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that he feeds the birds of the air and clothes the lilies of the field. All creation, all things are under God's power. God is sustainer of all things. And therefore, he is the lawgiver, and we need to follow him. Third, God is sovereign. We must remember that as well. We're not in control. God is sovereign, not only creator and sustainer. He's sovereign. And in Job, again, in this passage in chapter 42, Job answers, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. God can do all things. He is powerful over everything. And because God is sovereign, because he's in control, necessarily means that you are not. Uh, R.C. Sproul makes this very point. He says, because if God is sovereign, meaning that his freedom is absolute and extends over his whole creation, so that he has the power and ability to choose whatsoever he will. If God is sovereign, then manifestly no creature can be autonomous, because to be autonomous is to be a law unto yourself, and to be a law unto yourself, preclability of anything or anyone reigning sovereignly over you. The reality that God is sovereign means that we are not in control, and we need to remember that. Fourth, God is judge. If you think you are a law to yourself, there's going to be a rude awakening one day. All of us will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Everyone will, not just believers. Every single soul will stand before the Lord one day. Psalm 96, 13, before the Lord, 
for he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. God is going to render judgment one day. We may think we can judge things and we decide what is good and bad, that we can decide what is right or wrong on issues of abortion or gender or maybe, you know, what is acceptable as far as um, sexual issues. But it doesn't matter what we say. It matters, God will judge with righteous judgment one day. And we need to remember that we will face that judgment. So while the world may say, you do you, God says, you do what I tell you, or else you will face my judgment. It's not a snappy on a t-shirt or anything, you know, or a little meme. Um, but that's reality. world may say, you do you, but we need to understand, you should do what God has instructed. You must do what God has instructed because one day you're going to stand before him in judgment. And as we gospel with people, we can tell them, look, I want you to know that there's going to come a day you'll stand before the Lord and I want you to receive his, his welcome, to hear him say well done and not receive his judgment. But that means you must recognize him as Lord right now. And that he gets to decide what's right and wrong. The existence of God clearly speaks against the fact that we might think we're in control, against our autonomy. But there's one more truth that speaks against our autonomy, and this is particularly what I want you in the room who are believers to remember, is your redemption speaks against your autonomy. Your redemption. And I'm thankful, Clyde, the songs about there is a redeemer and speaking and singing of God's redemption this morning is uh, so fitting uh, for what we're looking at here. Redemption to buy back. God has purchased us. Now, every person is under God's authority and is not autonomous. Every person will one day bow before the Lord, and that is what we need to proclaim in our evangelism. But for those of you here who have surrendered your life to Christ, here is one more reason to remember that you're not autonomous. You have been bought by the precious blood of Christ. 1 Peter 1 speaks of this. If you address as father the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. We have been redeemed. We have been purchased with the precious blood of Christ. To think that we get to decide what is right and wrong fails to recognize the fact that we are not our own anymore. We have been bought by Christ, and he is our master. He is our Lord. 1 Corinthians 6.20 also points to this. You have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. Since God has purchased us through the precious blood of Christ, we need to honor him and to live like it, to live like we have been purchased, to live like we are not under our own control, but we are under the Lord's 
rulership and under his rules. There um, was a song Phil Webb used to often sing in, in uh, the sanctuary, He Paid Much Too High a Price. And I always that song. But the song goes, He Paid Much Too High a Price for Me. And then it goes on to say that I would live in such a way, basically, that doesn't count it precious, that, that has a cold love, that doesn't honor him. He paid way too high a price. Um, and so let's, as believers, remember, our redemption speaks against our autonomy. We have been purchased by Christ. Let's therefore honor God in our bodies. So we've seen the lie. We've seen the lie of autonomy and how we are not in control, that it's not us that gets to decide what is right and wrong. We counter that lie with the truth, that reality, God's existence, and our redemption all speak against autonomy. Well, finally then, what is our response? What is our response uh, to this? First is we need to tell the world of God's authority. You're going to have opportunities to be around people who have not submitted to Christ. And I hope you are. I hope you're not avoiding uh, being around unbelievers because such were we, right? Every one of us until God redeemed us. No one thinks that um, we earned, we, we cannot think that anything we did earned our salvation. But if you have the opportunity to speak to someone and they come to you, well, hey, isn't it my body, my choice? How do you respond? How do you respond to that? If, if, if they say a statement like that, that, hey, no one can tell me to choose what gender I am, how do you respond? Well, start by explaining the reality of who God is. Let them know about the God in heaven who created them, who sustains them. Let them know God who is sovereign and who one day will judge not in a way trying to scare someone, but to, out of love, reaching out to them. I had the opportunity, unsought-after uh, opportunity. Um, I was, when we had come back from China, uh, we were getting, getting cell phone service and figuring that whole deal out, uh, getting SIM cards for myself and getting my mom a SIM card for her phone, all these things. And uh, was at the store waiting for them to program, because it seems to take a while. Um, and there were two girls working there, and one of them said, hey, where do you work? And said, oh, I'm, I work at the church over here. And she said, hey, can I ask you a question? <laughs> you always know, when they start off with something like that, if it's just a regular question, they don't have to preface it with the, hey, can I ask you a question? <laughs> hey, can I ask you a question? Sure. Why are you Christians so judgmental? Why can't you just love other people, let them love whoever they want. Why do you guys have to be like that? As you can expect, I was a little surprised. Usually when you're signing up for a phone plan, that's not the question <laughs> that you get. <laughs> you know, what's your phone number, area code, and why do you have to say negative things about gay people? Um, so I was a little surprised, and I, you know, admittedly was not as eloquent or... Uh, prepared as I should have been. Um, but, uh, you know, the heart behind that question first is what we need to understand. It's who are Christians, and in extension, who is God to tell me what I can do and not do? You know, I, I get to decide what is right and wrong. 
is really what the thought is behind that. Now, again, in my less than say something, is because we love you. Number one, that's not the best life in this world because it's not the way God designed it. God designed a life that is wonderful, and that is not his design for this life. But secondly, and more importantly, you're going to stand before God in judgment one day. And I, want, I love you enough to let you know that you do not want to stand before him having disregarded his law your whole life. That would be the most horrible thing I could do. Most disregard and hateful is to just say, you know what, I don't care what's going to happen to, to you or to others who would choose something that's going to, fit, going to result in them facing God's judgment. So look, it's not because we want to bash people. It's because we want to see them know the joy of the Lord, to let them have the joy that comes from obeying Christ and enjoy eternity with him. Going on a little bit more and talk about, you know, certainly God's sovereignty, his sustaining ability and all those things. But, um, but we have an opportunity to point them to God, point them to the God who is in control and say, look, I know it's great to think that we can decide whatever we want, but it's actually better to do what God has decided what is right and follow his law because his law is sweet. His law is one that brings joy to you and not only in this life, but the life to come. At first blush, it may seem just choosing your own way is the easiest, but you know what? It's not the best. The best way is following God's law. And so let's, number one, our response should be, let's let, let people know of God and who he is and his authority and how better it is to follow his law than your own law. But secondly, our response is like you're redeemed. Recognize that you have been bought by Christ and every day live that way. That you bring every action you do, every decision that you make under the authority of Christ. When you have things that come up in your life, demonstrate that you are under God's authority by going to his word for the truth that will point you in the right way, by turning to him in prayer, by seeking out those godly and saying, show me what would God have me do in this situation. Let us demonstrate on a daily basis, on a choice-by-choice, decision-by-decision basis that we're not a law to ourselves, but that we are following God's law, what Christ has directed us. We've been brought with the price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So let's pray together. Father, we, we thank you that you have given us your word. You have given us your truth. And it's not to ruin our lives. Lord, it's to to bless us, and we just need to recognize that we need to submit to you, and you are in control. We thank you that you are a patient and loving God, Lord, and that you call people to yourself, not push them away, if we would just bow the knee to you. Lord, I pray as we are surrounded by a world where lies are being told and this whole idea of autonomy, of being a law to yourself is so prevalent, Lord, that we would not live that way as believers and that we will to let others know of a God who exists, 
who has created and sustains and will one day judge, and also a God who loves and that they can have a relationship with. Lord, may we be faithful to proclaim you, to lift your name high to the world around us. Lord, we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.